reading is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. It can be found on page 977 in the Black Bibles. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying, he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Mary Kerr, for reading that. And good morning. My name is Andres. I serve as a pastor here at Christ the King. Uh, so for the last 10 days, I was able to visit um, my parents' homeland of El Salvador uh, with my family. Um, my parents migrated here back in the 80s during the country's civil war. And while I grew up, you know, going every few years, I hadn't been since I was a teenager. And it was really fun to be able to take my wife and our children for their first time. While we were there, uh, we saw many family members, including my grandfather, who is now 95 years old. And while he is very frail and very weak, his mind is as sharp as ever. So we'd spend time with him, and he would tell us stories about his childhood, about raising a large family, about what my dad was like growing up, and more. And it was really interesting to listen to someone who has obviously had so much influence over our whole family, including my own life. Uh, in a transitional society like ours, where not many get to spend their days with extended family, it, was, um, it just felt right to have someone with authority remind me of where we come from and remind us of what we have been through. I think we all have this need inside of us to have people around us and over us to direct us, to guide us, to lead us. Now that seems obvious and we see it everywhere from parents to mentors uh, to counselors, to school coaches. But perhaps maybe less obvious is how that need finds fulfillment in the church. 
it's no less true that as Christians, we need people to direct us, to guide us, to lead us, in order to remind us where we come from, what we're up to, and where we're going. Thankfully, Jesus knows this need and provides such people to govern, to lead, to shepherd, and to care for his body, the church. Now today we're beginning a three-week series on how Jesus governs or rules us, the church. And I'll simply introduce the subject today. But what we're hoping is that the Lord will use this series to affirm those of you whom the Lord might be calling to serve the church as officers, to encourage those of you who are currently serving our church as officers, as elders and deacons, and then to lead all of us to gratitude for how Jesus rules us through humble servant leaders, which is what we're going to see through this text today. So we'll look at it in three sections. First, we'll see that Jesus is king. Second, we'll see that we, the church, are his kingdom. And then third, we'll see that Jesus rules us by his spirit through church officers or people whom he calls to serve the church. So Jesus is king. We are his kingdom. He rules us through church officers. So as we dive in, let's pray and ask for the Lord's guidance. Lord uh, Jesus, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So first, Jesus is king. Now this text, uh, Ephesians 4, 8, and 9, begins by describing what theologians call, referred to as the ascension of Jesus. Listen again. Therefore it says, so here Paul is quoting from a psalm, so it refers to the psalm, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the same one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. Now the ascension... Uh, which means to ascend or to be lifted high, is a somewhat of an underdeveloped theme in many church circles, but fundamental to understanding what Jesus is up to these days. If Jesus resurrected, as Christians believe, then where is he now? And what is he doing? What this text describes is that after Jesus resurrected, like we read in Acts chapter 1, he ascended into heaven, where, as we recite in the Apostles' Creed, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. What that phrase in the Creed and this text are describing is Jesus presently functioning as king, as ruler, as sovereign over all creation. That's where he is and what he's up to these days. He is ruling from heaven over all the universe. Now, if we're honest, 
It is somewhat strange to think and talk about monarchies today. Now, some of you might have grown up under monarchies, but most of us haven't. They're mostly entertaining, ancient relics from a distant past, but rarely taken seriously, much less feared. But that was definitely not the case for people in biblical times. Most of the Bible was written to people who were living under monarchies, and they understood what life under kings and queens was like. Now, there's a great text in 1 Samuel that describes what life under a king is like. So let me just read it for you. It starts like this. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. In other words, this is how a king acts. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, some to plow his ground, others to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will also take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and he'll give it to his officers and to his servants. He'll take your male servants and your female servants, the best of your young men, the best of your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. Now what this text is describing is an individual who has absolute power and control over the life and affairs of his subjects. In other words, it's describing life under a king. Now when Jesus came to earth, he began his ministry by saying the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. In and through Jesus, God inaugurates and ushers in his kingdom. And Jesus is its ruler. Now towards the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus will go on to say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That sure sounds like a king, doesn't it? Colossians 1.18, Paul will go on to say that Jesus has supremacy in everything. He has the power, the control, and the authority over everything and over everyone. In other words, Jesus is over all things. He is the supreme ruler over all of creation. There was no one like him. There is no one on par with him. There was no one equal to him. You've probably heard us quote uh, this a million times, but Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch theologian, reflecting on Jesus' kingship, once wrote that there is not a square inch in the whole existence of humanity over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, this is mine. There is not a square inch in the universe over which Jesus does not claim authority, power, dominion. Jesus declares that all of creation is his. Why? Because as verse 10 says, he ascended on high far above all heavens that he might fill all things. So first, Jesus 
is king. Second, we the church are his kingdom. Now we should not think that Jesus is simply a king in a general way. He is king over all creation generally, but more specifically, he has a kingdom over which he rules. If Jesus is king, where is his kingdom? Well, first, we should know and understand that it is not a place or a territory. So on the one hand, Jesus is king over all creation, and therefore, it's right to say that his kingdom extends over nations, like America, like France, and like Malaysia. He wants this world to reflect his original intentions of Genesis 1 and 2. It's why we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to see Jesus' kingdom values reflected here on earth. But on the other hand, we shouldn't suppose that one nation is the equivalent to Jesus' kingdom. Too often throughout church history, we have juxtaposed Jesus' kingdom with our country. But Jesus was very clear. My kingdom is not of this world. Now this has massive implications for how we think about our nation, about our duty as citizens, about how we extend Jesus' kingdom. And it is a tension that has existed since the founding of the church and that good Christians differ over. But at the very least, we know that Jesus' kingdom is not a place or a territory. So where is it then? Well, biblically, Jesus' kingdom is wherever his people are. Again, verse 8 reads, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, in a moment, we'll see... Uh, that these men that Paul's referring to here are God's chosen people, his ecclesia, his called out ones, his church. But the imagery here, which is so easily lost on us, comes from ancient times when a king would go far off to a distant land to fight a battle against a foreign enemy. He would emerge victorious and he would return back to his tribe, to his country, to his nation with the spoils of that battle. And he would give these gifts, which he had won, to his people simply because he wanted them to share in his victory. Now that is what this text tells us that Jesus did through his death, resurrection, and ascension. He comes to earth. He fights against sin and death, our mortal enemies. He emerges victorious, and then he shares the spoils of war. Now, I'll talk, about, uh, uh, I'll talk in a minute about what these spoils of war are, but the point here is simply that like an ancient king would share his gifts with his kingdom, Jesus also shares gifts with his kingdom, meaning his church. We, the church, his chosen people are his kingdom. 
That's why John, Revelation chapter 1, says that Jesus has made us to be a kingdom and a priest to his God and Father. See, the church is God's visible kingdom of grace. In the existence of the church and through the life of the church, Jesus intends to make his kingdom visible and real and tangible. Whenever churches gather and wherever churches scatter, that is Jesus making his kingdom visible. This is also why, by the way, Paul is so intent on making sure that the churches in the New Testament are living holy, upright, good lives. Because in and through these churches as communities, Jesus is making visible his rule and his reign on earth. See, Jesus is both Savior and Lord. We rightly say and confess that Jesus is our Savior, that he's our Redeemer, that he is our friend. However, we also learn throughout Scripture that Jesus is Lord, and specifically, he is Lord over his church. Now, why can Jesus make that claim over us, over the church? Because he bought us by his own blood. See, in the next chapter, chapter 5 of Ephesians, Paul will go on to say that Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. And therefore, he is the head of the church, the only head of the church. See, unlike other kings, including the king that was described for Samuel that I read earlier, Jesus is not a selfish king. He is not a tyrant. He is not a vengeful Lord. Unlike every other king, Jesus puts the needs of his people before his own, even at the cost of his own life. While we were sinners, rebellious, far off, seeking to be our own kings and queens, Jesus gave his life for us. See, when we approach Jesus as king... Hebrews says that we are approaching a throne of grace. Now, that sounds like an oxymoron. And it would have sounded as such to the original hearers who heard that. But only in Jesus can we see how this is true. He has a throne and is a sovereign king who deserves submission and loyalty and obedience. But it is not just any throne. It is a throne of grace of grace, of mercy, of compassion, and of pardon. And one day, Revelation 11 reminds us that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. So second, we the church are Jesus' kingdom, the visible manifestation of his grace to the world. Third and last, He rules us through gifted officers. So if Jesus is king and we are his kingdom, how does he rule us? A king governs, a king leads, a king rules. How does Jesus do that with us, his kingdom, the church? 
Because Jesus is not an absentee ruler. He doesn't just leave in the ascension and say, okay, you guys figure it out. He loves his church too much to leave us to ourselves. He knows how weak and how frail and how sinful we are. He knows how easily we're all led astray and want to give in and give up. But he also promises that the very gates of hell will not prevail against his church. That is an incredible promise. Not only when you consider the threats that so often exist within a church, but the threats that often exist outside of the church. So how does he intend to fulfill that promise? Well, one way that Jesus governs us, not the only way, but one way that he leads us, that he protects us, is through people whom he gives as gifts to his church. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this text shows us Jesus bestowing gifts to his people. In verses 11 to 16, Paul writes, And Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to, <clears throat> to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. In other words, these gifts that Jesus gives are not money, they're not resources, they're not jewelry or fine clothing or furniture like an ancient king would have brought. Jesus gives the church people whose work it is to build up the body until the king returns. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not suggesting that the people mentioned in this text are church officers. I think Paul is giving us very broad categories about particular people that he gives as gifts to the church. I'm simply saying that Jesus cares so much about keeping his church healthy and holy and pure that he provides people to lead, to nurture, to teach, to shepherd, and to care for his people. And what we'll see in the next two weeks is that among those people that he gives as gifts to the church, to the body, are elders and deacons. Now I want you to pay close attention here to the nature of these leaders' authority. Especially in our day, when authority in general is so suspect, when many church leaders have fallen, how can we trust in church leaders in general? How can we know that their intentions and their motivations are true and right? Well, first, we should know that a leader's authority is delegated. It's not original. In other words, only Jesus is king. They are not. And they cannot pretend to be king or to be on par with the king. Their, they themselves and their authority all depend on Jesus, who is the true king over all the world. Any time that leaders begin to act, behave, as if their authority belongs to them, they are usurping power, and Jesus will act one way or another. He will protect his people. 
because he loves them. Second, a leader's authority is declarative. It's not legislative. In other words, leaders don't get to make the laws. We don't get to make the rules. We don't get to make the commandments. We can only declare it. In the Old Testament, the punishment was great for anyone pretending to say, thus saith the Lord, when in fact God had said no such thing. A leader will always point to Scripture and seek to speak God's words after him, imperfect as it may be. And third, a leader's authority is ministerial. It's not magisterial. That means that a leader does not exist to serve themselves. They exist to serve others. Only Jesus is magistrate and can demand allegiance, obedience, and submission. A leader is there to serve as an example to the humble suffering king who came not even to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. My grandpa, as I mentioned, uh, is very old and very frail. And I'm not sure how much longer we'll have him around us here on earth to remind us and me about our family past and history. However, Jesus promises to never leave his bride, his children, without people to serve them, to guide them, and to lead them. And they are indeed his gifts to us. They are accountable to one another and to Christ. They rule in submission to the word of God. And they serve others, not themselves. So that every time we see elders and deacons doing good work, we're seeing Jesus ruling over us, caring for us, and listening to us. And for that, we should be grateful. Let's pray. God of love and compassion, you poured out your love in service through your son, Jesus Christ. By word and example, he taught us to find fulfillment in giving ourselves and to find greatness in serving others. Thank you, Lord, for designing your church with such wisdom and care. Bless those who are called to be elders that they may govern wisely and fairly. And bless those called to be deacons who lead us in service and in caring. Give them the full measure of your spirit so that they may refresh your people along the journey of faith and empower them by the grace of your spirit so that your whole church may give its life for the sake of the world. In the name of Jesus Christ who came not to be served but to serve. Amen.